0: Hello, and welcome to For Starters from All for One Productions in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the podcast that brings you audio appetizers from time-tested tales for the whole family. Our theater company prepares a full season of values-rich, thought-provoking, family-friendly fare for a local audience. But not every great story makes a great stage play, and there are more delicious tales to taste than we have time to cook. So we've created this podcast in order to expand our menu, introducing a larger audience to a wider array of literary offerings. Our actors will read you a chapter or two, tell you a bit about the whole work, and point you to where you can read, watch, or listen to the rest of the story. We hope you'll enjoy what you hear and that it makes you hungry for more. This podcast is produced with the support of the Community Foundation of Greater Fort Wayne. This time, on for starters, we present the opening chapters of E. Nesbitt's 1907 comic fantasy, The Enchanted Castle. Born in 1858, Nesbitt published her first volume of poetry before she was 20, but didn't begin writing her well-known novels for children until 1899, when she published The Story of the Treasure Seekers. Nesbitt went on to write more than 40 books, including novels, short stories, and poetry. Among her most well-loved books is The Railway Children, about a middle-class family fallen on hard times because of their father's wrongful imprisonment. Another enduring work, Five Children and It, is part of a trilogy of books about a wish-granting sand fairy. Nesbitt, sometimes called the first modern writer for children, is noted for her ability to write realistically and unsentimentally about children, and to blend ordinary life with elements of magic. P.T. Travers, author of Mary Poppins, Edward Eager, C.S. Lewis, and J.K. Rowling are among the authors who were influenced by her work. The Enchanted Castle, like many of her other books, involves middle-class English children having adventures largely without adult supervision. This book displays Nesbitt's excellent sense of humor and blends childhood imagination and magic in ways which are surprising and often hilarious. Now let's meet Catherine and her two brothers. Forced to spend their vacation at school, and expecting to be bored, they stumble on adventures which are anything but dull.
1: There were three of them, Jerry, Jimmy, and Kathleen. Of course, Jerry's name was Gerald, and not Jeremiah, whatever you may think. And Jimmy's name was James, and Kathleen was never called by her name at all, but Kathy or Cat. And they were at school in a little town in the west of England. The boys at one school, of course, and the girl at another, because the sensible habit of having boys and girls at the same school is not yet as common as I hope it will be some day. They used to see each other on Saturdays and Sundays at the house of a kind maiden lady, but it was one of those houses where it is impossible to play. You know the kind of house, don't you? So they looked forward to the holidays when they should all go home and be together all day long in a house where playing was natural and conversation possible and where the Hampshire forests and fields were full of interesting things to do and see. The cousin Betty was to be there too and there were plans. Betty's school broke up before those and so she got to the Hampshire home first and the moment she got there she began to have measles so that our three couldn't go home at all. You may imagine their feelings. After a lot of letters and telegrams, it was arranged that the boys should go and stay at Kathleen's school, where there were now no girls left and no mistresses except the French one. We ought to have some sort of play to keep us going through the holidays, said Kathleen when tea was over, and she had unpacked and arranged the boys' clothes in the painted chests of drawers, feeling very grown up and careful as she neatly laid the different sorts of clothes in tidy little heaps in the drawers. Suppose we write a book.
2: You couldn't,
3: said
1: Jimmy. I didn't mean me, of course. I meant
4: us.
3: Too much work,
1: said Gerald briefly.
4: If we wrote a book about what the insides of schools really are like, people would read it and say how clever we were.
3: More likely expel us. No, we'll have an out-of-doors game. Bandits or something like that. It wouldn't be bad if we could get a cave and keep stores in it and have our meals there. "'There aren't any caves,'
1: said Jimmy, who was fond of contradicting everyone.
3: "'And besides, your precious
2: mademoiselle won't let us go out alone, as likely as not.' "'Oh, we'll see about that. I'll go and talk
3: to her, like a father.'
1: "'Like that?' Kathleen pointed the thumb of scorn at him, and he looked in the glass.
3: "'To brush his hair and his clothes and to wash his face and hands was to our hero but the work of a moment,'
1: said Gerald, and went to suit the action to the word.' "'It was a very sleek boy, brown and thin and interesting-looking, "'that knocked at the door of the parlour "'where Mademoiselle sat reading a yellow-covered book "'and wishing vain wishes. "'Gerald could always make himself look interesting "'at a moment's notice, "'a very useful accomplishment in dealing with strange grown-ups. "'It was done by opening his grey eyes rather wide, "'allowing the corners of his mouth to droop, "'and assuming a gentle, pleading expression,' resembling that of a late little Lloyd Fauntleroy, who must, by the way, be quite old now and an awful prig. Entre," said Mademoiselle in shrill French accents. So he entered. Eh bien, she said rather impatiently.
3: I hope I'm not disturbing you,
1: said Gerald, in whose mouth it seemed butter would not have melted. But no, what is it that you desire?
3: I thought I ought to come and say how do you do, because of you being the lady of the house.
1: He held out the newly washed hand, still damp and red. She took it.
5: You are a very polite little boy.
3: Not at all. I'm so sorry for you. It must be dreadful to have us to look after in the holidays.
5: But not at all. I am sure you will be very good childrens. Gerald's look assured her that he and the
1: others would be as near angels as children could be, without ceasing to be human.
3: We'll try.
5: Can one do anything for you?
3: Oh, no, thank you. We don't want to give you any trouble at all. And I was thinking it would be less trouble for you if we were to go out into the woods all day tomorrow and take our dinner with us, something cold, you know, as to not be a trouble to the cook.
5: You are very considerate,
1: said Mademoiselle coldly. Then Gerald's eyes smiled. They had a trick of doing this when his lips were quite serious, Mademoiselle caught the twinkle, and she laughed, and Gerald laughed too.
5: Little deceiver, why not say at once you want to be free of surveillance? How you say, overwatching? We start pretending it is me you wish to please.
3: You have to be careful with grown-ups, but it isn't all pretense either. We don't want to trouble you, and we don't want you to.
5: <laughs> to trouble you? Eh bien, your parents they permit these days at woods? Oh yes then I will not be more a dragon than the parents. I will forewarn the cook. Are you content?
3: Rather. Mademoiselle, you are a deer.
5: A deer? A stag?
3: N- no, uh, a, a sherry. A regular A1 sherry. And you shan't repent it. Is there anything we can do for you? Wind your wool or find your spectacles? Or...
5: <laughs> he thinks me a grandmother. Go then and be not more naughty than you must.
4: Well,
3: What luck? It's all right. I told you it would be. The ingenuous youth won the regard of the foreign governess, who in her youth had been the beauty of her humble village.
4: I don't believe she ever was. She's too stern.
3: Ah, that's only because you don't know how to manage her. She wasn't stern with me. I say. What a humbug you are, though. Aren't you? No, I'm a dip. What's its name? Something like an ambassador? Ah, a diplomatist. That's what I am. Anyhow, we've got our day, and if we don't find a cave in it, my name's not Jack Robinson.
1: Mademoiselle, less stern than Kathleen had ever seen her, presided at supper, which was bread and treacle spread several hours before, and now harder and drier than any other food you can think of. Gerald was very polite in handing her butter and cheese and pressing her to taste the bread and treacle.
5: Ah, it is like sand in the mouth of a dryness. Is it possible this pleases you?
3: No, it is not possible. But it is not polite for boys to make remarks about their food.
1: She laughed, but there was no more dried bread and treacle for supper after that. How do you do it? Kathleen whispered admiringly as they said good night.
3: Oh, it's quite easy once you've got a grown-up to see what you're after. You'll see. I shall drive her with a rain of darning cotton after this.
1: Next morning, Gerald got up early and gathered a little bunch of pink carnations from a plant which he had found hidden among the marigolds. He tied it with black cotton and laid it on Mademoiselle's plate. She smiled and looked quite handsome as she stuck the flowers in her belt.
2: Do you think it's quite decent,
1: Jimmy asked later,
2: sort of bribing people to let you do as you like with flowers and things and and passing them the salt?
4: It's not that. I know what Gerald means. Only, I never think of the things in time myself. You see, if you want grown-ups to be nice to you, the least you can do is to be nice to them and think of little things to please them. I never think of any myself. Jerry does. That's why all the old ladies like him. It's not bribery.
1: It's a sort of honesty. Like paying for things.
2: Well, anyway...
1: Said Jimmy, putting away the moral question.
2: We've got a ripping day for the woods.
1: They had. The wide high street, even at the busy morning hour, almost as quiet as a dream street, lay bathed in sunshine, the leaves shone fresh from last night's rain. But the road was dry, and in the sunshine the very dust of it sparkled like diamonds. The beautiful old houses, standing stout and strong, looked as though they were basking in the sunshine and enjoying it. "'But are there any woods?' asked Kathleen as they passed the market place.
3: It doesn't much matter about woods. We're sure to find something. One of the chaps told me his father said when he was a boy there used to be a little cave under the bank in a lane near the Salisbury Road. But he said there was an enchanted castle there too, so perhaps the cave isn't true either.
1: If we
4: were to get horns and to blow them very hard all the way, we might find a magic castle.
2: If you've got the money to throw away on horns...
4: Well, I have, as
1: it happens. So there! and the horns were bought in a tiny shop with a bulging window full of a tangle of toys and sweets and cucumbers and sour apples. The quiet square at the end of the town where the churches, and the houses of the most respectable people, echoed to the sound of horns blown long and loud, but none of the houses turned into enchanted castles. Away they went along Salisbury Road, which was very hot and dusty, so they agreed to drink one of the bottles of ginger beer.
2: We might as well carry the ginger beer inside us as inside the bottle, and we can hide the bottle and call for it as we come back.
1: Presently they came to a place where the road, as Gerald said, went two ways at once. That
4: looks like adventures,
1: said Kathleen, and they took the right-hand road, and the next they took a turning it was a left-hand one.
2: So as to be quite fair,
1: Jimmy said, and then a right-hand one, and then a left, and so on till they were completely lost. Completely? How jolly! And now trees arched overhead, and the banks of the road were high and bushy. The adventurers had long since ceased to blow their horns. It was too tiring to go on doing that when there was no one to be annoyed by it.
2: Oh, crikey! Let's sit down a bit and have some of our dinner. We might as well call it lunch, you know.
1: He added persuasively. So they sat down in the hedge and ate the ripe red gooseberries that were to have been the dessert. And as they sat and rested, and wished that their boots did not feel so full of feet, Gerald leaned back against the bushes, and the bushes gave way so that he almost fell over backward. Something had yielded to the pressure of his back, and there was the sound of something heavy that fell.
3: Oh, Jiminy, there's something hollow in there. The stone I was leaning against simply went. I wish it was a cave, but
2: of course it isn't.
1: If we blow the horns, perhaps it will be, said Kathleen, and hastily blew her own. Gerald reached his hand through the bushes.
3: I can't feel anything but air. It's just a hole full of emptiness.
1: The other two pulled back the bushes. There certainly was a hole in the bank.
3: I'm going to go in.
1: Oh, don't. I wish you wouldn't. Suppose there were snakes. Not likely, said Gerald, but he leaned forward and struck a match.
3: It is a cave.
1: He cried and put his knee on the mossy stone he had been sitting on, scrambled over it, and disappeared. A breathless pause followed.
3: You all right? Yes. Come on. You'd better come feet first. There's a bit of a drop.
1: I'll go next, said Kathleen, and went feet first, as advised. The feet waved wildly in the air. Look out, said Gerald in the dark.
3: You'll have my eye out. Put your feet down, girl, not up. It's no use trying to fly here. There's no room.
1: He helped her by pulling her feet forcibly down and then lifting her under the arms. She felt rustling dry leaves under her boots and stood ready to receive Jimmy, who came in headfirst, like one diving into an unknown sea. It is a cave!
3: The young explorers,
1: explained Gerald, blocking up the whole of the entrance with his shoulders.
3: Dazzled at first by the darkness of the cave, could see nothing. Darkness doesn't dazzle.
4: I wish we'd got a candle.
3: Yes, it does. Could see nothing but their dauntless leader, whose eyes had grown used to the dark while their clumsy forms of the others were bunging up the entrance, had made a discovery. Oh, Oh, what? what?
1: Both the others were used to Gerald's way of telling a story while he acted it. But they did sometimes wish that he didn't talk quite so long and so like a book in moments of excitement.
3: He did not reveal the dread secret to his faithful followers till one and all had given him their word of honor to be calm. We'll be calm, all right. Well, then,
1: said Gerald, ceasing suddenly to be a book and becoming a boy.
3: There's a light over there. Look behind you.
1: They looked, and there was. A faint grayness on the brown walls of the cave, and a brighter grayness cut off sharply by a dark line showed that round a turning or angle of the cave, there was daylight. Attention, said Gerald. At least, that was what he meant. Though what he said was... Shun! as becomes the son of a soldier. The others mechanically obeyed.
3: You will remain at attention till I give the word. Slow march on which you will advance cautiously in open order, following your hero leader, taking care not to tread on the dead and wounded.
2: I wish you wouldn't.
3: There aren't any, said Jimmy,
2: feeling for her hand in the dark. He only means take care not to tumble over stones and things.
1: Here he found her hand, and she screamed.
2: (laughs) It's only me. I thought you'd like me to hold it, but... You're just like a girl.
1: Their eyes had now begun to get accustomed to the darkness, and all could see that they were in a rough stone cave. They went straight on for about three or four yards, and then turned sharply to the right.
3: Death or victory. Now then, slow march.
1: He advanced carefully, picking his way among the loose earth and stones that were the floor of the cave. How splendid. Kathleen drew a long breath as she came out into the sunshine. The narrow passage ended in a round arch, all fringed with ferns and creepers. They passed through the arch into a deep, narrow gully, whose banks were of stones, moss-covered, and in the crannies grew more ferns and long grasses. Trees growing on the top of the bank arched across, and the sunlight came through in changing patches of brightness, turning the gully to a roofed corridor of goldy-green. The path, which was of greeny-grey flagstones, where heaps of leaves had drifted, sloped steeply down, and at the end of it was another round arch, quite dark inside, above which rose rocks and grass and bushes.
2: It's like the outside of a
3: railway tunnel.
4: It's the entrance to the enchanted castle. Let's blow the horns!
3: Dry up. The bold captain reproving the silly chatter of his subordinates. I like that. I thought you would. Of his subordinates, bade them advance with caution and in silence, because after all, there might be somebody about. And the other arch might be an ice house or something dangerous. What? Bears, perhaps. There aren't any bears
2: without bars. In England, anyway. They call bears bars in America.
3: Quick march.
1: Was Gerald's only reply, and they marched. Under the drifted, damp leaves, the path was firm and stony to their shuffling feet. At the dark arch,
3: they stopped. are steps down. It is an ice house.
1: Don't let's...
3: Our hero, who nothing could dismay, raised the faltering hopes of his abject minions by saying that he was jolly well going on and they could do as they liked about it. If you call names, you can go on by yourself. So there. It's part of the game, silly. You can be captain tomorrow, so you'd better hold your jaw now and begin to think about what names you'll call us when it's your turn.
1: Very slowly and carefully they went down the steps. A vaulted stone arched over their heads. Gerald struck a match when the last step was found to have no edge and to be, in fact, the beginning of a passage turning to the left.
3: This will take us back into the road. Or under it. We've come down eleven steps.
1: They went on, following their leader, who went very slowly, for fear, as he explained, of steps. The passage was very dark.
2: I don't half like it.
1: Then came a glimmer of daylight that grew and grew and presently ended in another arch, that looked out over a scene so like a picture out of a book about Italy that everyone's breath was taken away. And they simply walked forward, silent and staring. A short avenue of cypresses led, widening as it went, to a marble terrace that lay broad and white in the sunlight. The children, blinking, leaned their arms on the broad-flat balustrade and gazed. Immediately below them was a lake, just like a lake in the beauties of Italy, a lake with swans and an island and weeping willows. Beyond it were green slopes dotted with groves of trees, and amid the trees gleamed the white limbs of statues. Against a little hill to the left was a round, white building with pillars, and to the right a waterfall came tumbling down among mossy stones to splash into the lake. Steps fed from the terrace to the water, and other steps to the green lawns beside it. Away across the grassy slopes deer were feeding, and in the distance where the groves of trees thickened into what looked almost a forest were enormous shapes of grey stone, like nothing that the children had ever seen before.
3: That chap at school.
1: It is an enchanted castle.
3: I don't see any castle. What do you call that then?
1: Gerald pointed to where, beyond a belt of lime trees, white towers and turrets broke the blue of the sky. There doesn't seem to be anyone about, and yet it's all so
4: tidy. I believe it is magic.
2: Magic mowing machines?
4: If we were in a book, It would be an enchanted castle, certain
2: to be.
3: It is an enchanted castle. But there aren't any. How do you know? Do you think there's nothing in the world but what you've seen? I think magic went out
2: when people began to have steam engine, and and newspapers, and telephones, and and
3: wireless telegraphing. Wireless is rather like magic when you come to think of it. Oh, that sort.
4: Perhaps there's given up being magic because people don't believe in it anymore.
3: Let's not spoil the show with any silly old not believing. I'm going to believe in magic as hard as I can. This is an enchanted garden, and that's an enchanted castle, and I'm jolly well going to explore.
1: The dauntless knight then led the way, leaving his ignorant squires to follow or not, just as they jolly well chose. He rolled off the balustrade and strode firmly down towards the lawn, his boots making, as they went, a clatter full of determination. The others followed. There never was such a garden out of a picture or fairy tale. They passed quite close by the deer, who only raised their pretty heads to look and did not seem startled at all. And after a long stretch of turf, they passed under the heaped-up heavy masses of lime trees and came into a rose garden, bordered with thick, close-cut yew hedges and lying red and pink and green and white in the sun, like a giant's many-coloured, highly-scented
3: pocket handkerchief.
4: I know we shall meet a gardener in any minute, and he'll ask us what we're doing here. And then what will you say?
3: I shall say we have lost our way, and it will be quite true.
1: But they did not meet a gardener or anybody else, and the feeling of magic got thicker and thicker, till they were almost afraid of the sound of their feet in the great silent place. Beyond the rose garden was a yew hedge with an arch cut in it, and it was the beginning of a maze, like the one in Hampton Court.
3: Now, you mark my words. In the middle of this maze we shall find the secret enchantment. Draw your swords, my merry men all, and hark forward tally-ho in the utmost silence.
1: Which they did. It was very hot in the maze, between the close yew hedges, and the way to the maze's heart was hidden well. Again and again they found themselves at the black yew arch that opened on the rose garden and they were all glad that they had brought large, clean pocket handkerchiefs with them. It was when they found themselves there for the fourth time that Jimmy suddenly cried, Oh, I wish.
2: Oh, where's the dinner?
1: And then, in a stricken silence, they all remembered that the basket with the dinner had been left at the entrance of the cave. Their thoughts dwelt fondly on the slices of cold mutton, the six tomatoes, the bread and butter, the screwed-up paper of salt, the apple turnovers, and the little thick glass that one drank the ginger beer out of.
2: Let's go back, now this minute, and get our
3: things, and and have our dinner. Let's have one more try at the maze. I hate giving things up. I am so hungry. Why didn't you say so before? I wasn't before. Then you can't be now. You don't get hungry all in a minute. What's that?
1: That was a gleam of red that lay at the foot of the yew hedge. A thin little line that you would hardly have noticed unless you had been staring in a fixed and angry way at the roots of the hedge. It was a thread of cotton. Gerald picked it up. One end of it was tied to a thimble with holes in it, and the other...
3: There is no other end. It's a clue. That's what it is. What price-cold-mutton now? I've always felt something magic would happen someday, and now it has. I expect the gardener put it there. With a princess's silver thimble on it. Look! There's a crown on the thimble. There was. Come, if you are adventurers, be adventurers. And anyhow, I expect someone has gone along the road and bagged them up an hour ago.
1: He walked forward, winding the red thread round his fingers as he went. And it was a clue. And it led them right into the middle of the maze. And in the very middle of the maze they came upon the wonder. The red clue led them up two stone steps to a round grass plot. There was a sundial in the middle and all around against the yew hedge a low wide marble seat the red clue ran straight across the grass and by the sundial and ended in a small brown hand with jeweled rings on every finger the hand was naturally attached to an arm and that had many bracelets on it sparkling with red and blue and green stones the arm wore a sleeve of pink and gold brocaded silk faded a little here and there, but still extremely imposing. And the sleeve was part of a dress, which was worn by a lady who lay on the stone seat asleep in the sun. The rosy gold dress fell open over an embroidered petticoat of a soft green color. There was old yellow lace the color of scalded cream, and a thin white veil spangled with silver stars covered the face.
3: It's the enchanted princess. I told you so.
0: In this episode, you heard Lydia Tomaszewski as the narrator, Rachel Custer as Kat, Tomac Shorjan as Jerry, Micah Gilliam as Jimmy, and Lauren Nichols as Mademoiselle. Thank you for joining us once again for Four Starters. I'm Stacy Custer, and I'm Lauren Nichols. What do you think? Uh, this, you know, what I have never even heard of this story before this particular um, recording, and. Uh, I love it. It's great. I haven't read the whole thing yet. It's on my ever-expanding to-do list, right. but um, I loved it. It was such a fun mm-hmm. beginning. And
5: you know, it gets, it gets even more fun. It, we're f- relatively well committed to first chapters if we can possibly right. manage it. Right. This is um, a great first chapter. It, it sets is. things up. But yeah. what I want people to know is it gets so much more um, active and interesting and surprising um, can I tell, like, the next little bit? Because, really, I c- another chapter forward, and it's still most of the book. It's not a spoiler so okay. much. As long as there
0: aren't spoilers. Well, be one. because yeah. this
5: girl who's lying there, and she's dressed like a princess, they wake her up I- in the way that one wakes an enchanted princess, and she <laughs> says that she's been asleep for 100 years, and the castle's been enchanted. And Ken and Jerry kind of want to believe her, and, of course, Jimmy doesn't at all, Jimmy's and is trying to <laughs> poke holes in her story. Jimmy. But she takes them into a room and says it's the treasury. It's an empty round room. She says, well, close your eyes. And they hear a noise and they open their eyes. And there are shelves of jewels all along the walls. It's like, okay, now they're sold. There this, this must be an enchanted princess. And she's telling them all these different things. Well, something happens that kind of trips her up. And she ends up having to confess that. She's not the princess. But in the meantime, she's picked up a ring and said, And this ring, if you put it on, will make you invisible. And she does. And she is. Oh,
0: wow.
5: And she (laughs) freaks
0: out. I think
5: most people would when you. Because she had no idea it was magic. She doesn't know how it works and she can't get it off. Ah. The entire rest of the book is them having one hilarious adventure after another with trying to figure out how this ring works. And the fact that in the midst of their very normal prosaic lives, they've got this magic
0: ring. It's, it's delightful. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, and since it is public domain, domain, it's on Project Gutenberg. You can just... There's a online. free version on Kindle, too, because I looked yeah. it up. Yeah.
5: And there's yeah. A, there are several... There are only two or three audio versions. I listened to all of them, and I wrote down which one it is that I thought was the best. Joanna Ward reads it unabridged for Blackstone Audio. It's available on Audible. I strongly recommend that particular version if you want to listen to the whole thing. And I was also astonished to find that there was a BBC TV miniseries in 1979. Oh, wow. Not ever released on DVD.
0: Isn't that interesting? I
5: would think that this would be an absolutely perfect
0: miniseries. I would love to see this done now. It would be really fun, yeah. I can't wait to read it. Um, Really excited about it. One of the things that I loved um, was just the turn of phrase Mm -hmm. that she has. You you said it displays her sense of humor, and it certainly does. So many parts of it made me chuckle. You know, the the little, the the laughter that just kind of erupts, it just like bursts out, and you're like, oh my gosh, didn't see that coming. You know, that was an unexpected way to put that.
5: I think that um, the thing that that sets this golden age of children's literature apart is that the writers of that time. a. a. Milne and J.M. Barrie and Frances Hodgson Burnett, they were not, they were writing for children which was a new thing, but they were not writing for little kids. Mm. And mm-hmm. as, a, as a result, of their books, think of The Wind in the Willows, um, they don't appeal just to children. Yeah. They appeal to everyone. And there are things that you don't really even understand until you're an adult. Mm-hmm. Wind in the Pooh is hilarious, but it's hilarious a lot of because of What you understand as the adult reading it and he and his friends and even your little kids reading it don't get. Yeah. But you see immediately what's happening. So uh, they're very intelligent books and I feel like um, those writers tend to grow up with you. Yes. And this is no exception. Um, This was very popular among uh, adults at the time. And a hundred years later, people still read her. The Railway Children is a, a lovely book, and the others that, that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. This one just isn't quite as well-known, and I think it should be, so maybe we've so, done our bit now. That's right.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I did see um, Five Children in It. Um, I didn't actually know until we were doing this that it that was... was her, and then it was based on a book. Mm-hmm. I just thought somebody had written but that. That was it for the BBC, wasn't exactly. it? No, it was a movie. Is it? Um, I know I've seen it.
5: Yeah. Eddie Izzard was the voice of the Samhain. Yeah, Sam-Aid. of
0: the Samed, yeah, yeah. Which was weird. And f- I think Freddie Highmore yes. was the oldest Yes,
5: at that time boy. he was doing so many of those movies. Yeah. So many movies that he was in right in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, Finding Neverland was, I think, one of the uh, best yeah. known that he was in. And there are two or three different versions of The Railway Children, which is a favorite of mine too I've read that yeah aloud. doing
0: some Pickle research for this I read a little bit about the railway children and that sounds
5: like a really interesting story it's a lovely lovely yeah. book that's actually been done as a stage play as well although I'm not sure how you manage it because the train is the rather train. a big yeah. part of the story I I don't
0: know yeah It'd be be an, fun one to see it maybe more so fun to see than do yeah. I don't know yeah yeah but this is a, an author, actually, that I hadn't heard of either until, mm-hmm. until now. I hadn't connected any of, of the b- stories that she wrote with movies that I'd seen or b- anything like that. So it's fun to, you know, put it all together yes. and make these connections. Yes. So.
5: I think I actually discovered her as an adult. Mm. I knew of The Railway Children, but I don't remember whether I actually read it. I'm pretty certain. In fact, I bought some of her books for the first time when I was in England the first time and used bookstores. just one of my favorite places to go right (laughs) um yeah so i I hope that uh i hope that everybody who's listening will check out e nesbit
0: e E period
5: That's it. she went by her first initial her name was edith bland i think i'd go by e nesbit too all
0: right it's a good choice (laughs) yeah it was a good choice
5: so we've got just one more episode in our one more
0: episode to go that's right Um, We're excited for that, and uh, we hope that you guys are enjoying this. We hope that you're checking out these different titles that we're bringing to you and that you're enjoying these stories as much as we do. Absolutely.
5: In the comments, you can um, talk to us about some other stories that you think would be good candidates for doing a chapter of. On for starters, please rate the podcast and share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.
0: This production was recorded and engineered by Frosty Pictures with the support of the Community Foundation of Greater Fort Wayne.